Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, on the 5th of May, Northern Ireland goes to the poll for the Assembly elections. This is seen by many as being probably the most significant such election in the Assembly's history, as the polls suggest that Sinn Féin are on track to be the largest party and will, in theory at least, therefore take the role of First Minister. The election comes against the background of two issues that have come to the fore in recent years which feed into the age-old divide. The DUP and some of its unionist allies are determined that the Northern Ireland Protocol, which allows, remember, for the maintenance of a soft border between the North and the Republic, be scrapped, as they perceive it as a threat to their connection to the mainland, as they would call it. On the nationalist side, and I suppose predominantly among Sinn Féin, the changed demographics and the fallout from Brexit are viewed as hurrying along a border pole, which they see as bringing about a united Ireland. But how much concern is there among the woman and man in the street in the North's cities and towns about these matters? Or are they more concerned with bread and butter issues like electorates everywhere? And if so, who is best placed to meet their concerns? Joining me to read the runes is one of the foremost commentators and analysts on Northern politics, Mick Fealty, who is, of course, the founding editor of the website and multimedia outlet Slugger O'Toole. For anybody unfamiliar with Slugger O'Toole, I have to say it comes highly recommended as a weather vane of current affairs with some great insights, not to mention the quality of the writing therein. Mick, you're very welcome. Thanks for that great introduction, Mick. I'm not sure I totally uh, deserve it, but, th- but thanks. Well, I think, I, I think now anybody needs to take a quick look and, and there's both eating and drinking on it, Mick, I have to say, <laughs> in Slugger O'Toole, I, I, I would suggest. Tell me... Um, as I said, Mick, it looks like Sinn Féin will be the biggest party. First of all, would you agree? And if so, what will that actually mean in real terms? Look, I think you've got to remember the polling isn't as consistent in the north as it is in the south. You've got, you know, in the south, you've got at least three major uh, media outlets doing their own polling on a regular basis. Ours tends to be irregular. Um, and there are questions over... You know, when when you're getting it only from one or two sources, then there's questions about how hard some of that reading is. So I'd say when you talk to most of the political parties privately, and I would suggest the DUP and Sinn Féin are both in that category, there's a degree of scepticism uh, around just how solid that is. But I think generally speaking, um, I think it's really uh, Sinn Féin's election to lose rather than anything else. Um where it gets complicated is how STVPR works. And um, what you've got really on the unionist side is a split vote that splits three ways between the DUP, the Ulster Unionist, and Jim Allister's TUV, the traditional unionist voice. And 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 it's how the it's not so much how the first preferences will work out. I think that ought to work out fairly firmly in Sinn Fein's favour. 
It's whether then the DUP can expect enough transfers to get them enough seats to keep their noses either just ahead of Sinn Féin as they were back in 2017 or even neck and neck and then look at look at where the first preference is. That would be the tiebreaker uh, for the first minister's job. Um, but I do think uh, everything is indicating that Sinn Féin is in a good position, although the likelihood is they may actually drop some seats themselves. It may be a case of them both dropping, but um, Sinn Féin dropping less than the, than the DUP. Um, it, 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 it's then I think we come up to the issue of um, what happens if Sinn Féin gets its nose ahead and wins by right uh, the right to appoint the first minister. Uh, and, and that, I think, is in the... Almost in the lap of the gods. I I think if the DUP comes second, I think we're facing something of a standoff and a hiatus around renegotiation of that protocol. Okay, and I notice, Mick, that Sinn Féin are running on a change platform. No, it's undeniable where they to... um to take the First Minister's or be in a position to take the First Minister's office, that would be a significant change, symbolically at the very least. But apart from that, in terms of the, the impact on people's lives, it's a bit of a strange one considering they've been jointly running um, the government there effectively over the last couple of decades, really. No, that's right. And uh, But look, before we leave the first one to investigate the more substantial issue as to whether it would signal a change in terms of how Northern Ireland is run, I, I think it's important to understand that the, the, that the change message they've got, the limited one, the symbolic one they've got, nevertheless, I think is a resonant one. And when, when Mary Lou talks about, you know, Sinn Féin has served in the position of deputy for a long period of time, I think that does ring true to people that the DUP is kind of fighting this idea of becoming the deputy of the dreaded uh, Republican movement. And that's a tough, that's tough for unionism to take. And it may be that it creates enough resonance within the unionist vote to prevent it from happening. Um, but I also think, I think it's, it, it, it's, it could be a significant moment because this has been the sort of Damocles hanging over the Northern institutions for a long time. Uh, and, if Sinn Féin does become, or at least asserts its right to become the First Minister's job, for me, that's potentially the end of a long-running narrative that has dogged uh, Northern Irish politics for for a long time. Now, it's not that Sinn Féin will then go on to achieve great things with that, because they'll still probably be stuck with this um, barren relationship they've got with the DUP. So the idea that that then enables them to go on and do anything um, I, I think that's that's where the scepticism comes in because the habits, the bad relationships, the 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 bar the sheer barrenness of this relationship really, particularly since Martin uh, they lost Martin McGuinness, um, but even before then it wasn't brilliant. Um, that they seem to specialise in stopping each other doing for anything that they might want to do. Uh, that that would enhance their reputation uh, in terms of their own base players. I don't think that's going to change. So the change narrative works for me up to a very limited point, but only to the point at which it kills 
the golden goose that's been laying the egg or these golden eggs for both the DUP and Sinn Féin for a long time. So in actually breaking the DUP, the Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin may also be bre- breaking the very source of its own hegemony, which is to become bigger than the, than the DUP itself. Okay, and now we have also a, a, a burgeoning... Um I don't think you'd quite call it a third force, perhaps, but maybe maybe you might, uh, a sprouting middle ground, to put it that way, uh, which would include the alliance, presumably, mainly, and you, I don't know exactly the Greens and some of the others, but how would you characterise that third element, Mick, but in terms of its composition and its traction, and is it a generational thing? Yeah, I think it's something to do with generations, but I also think... It's also to do with the way politics has changed over the last 20 years. Now, really at the very beginning of what we used to call, and often I used to put TM behind it just to denote irony, the peace process. I think the peace process, during the peace process era, then I think peace was the most prized, it was the premium thing that any political party could deliver. And to some extent, investing in the bad boys of DUP and Sinn Féin was a way of sort of saying, look, you know, to the the former extremes, if you like, the people who would have driven the violence in one way or another, that actually, look, you've been brought in the House, your votes are being listened to, your representatives are, you know, nothing happens unless they say so, all the rest of it. And that, to a certain extent, although it's flawed in many respects, we've got... Issues around, you know, we don't have a CAB anymore. There's no Criminal Assets Bureau anymore. That's been cashiered. And I think that creates all kinds of difficulties in the undergrowth. Nevertheless, we've moved inexorably to a much more peaceful society because of that. And I think people are beginning to wander off the peace. They're beginning to enter. We can see from the census returns that the people who call themselves non-Catholic or non-Protestant is growing First of all, really between 2001 and 2011 by 3%. It was 14% that it went up to 17%. I fully expect when the census report from last year is finally published, we'll see neithers, neither Catholic nor Protestant um, taking up a full 20 or possibly more percent of the population. And you can see that the Alliance Party is beginning to grow with the confidence of that that middle group of people who basically say a plague on both your houses, we're not interested in constitutional issues, whether it is defending the union, which, by the way, those of us who used to vote unionists don't believe is under any serious threat anymore, or constitutional change reuniting with uh, a united Ireland. Now, it's still going to be fairly weakly expressed, I think. It'll be uh, fourth and fifth seats in many cases that they're going to pick up rather than breaking through. But I do think it's it, it's indicative of where the growth is within the demographic, which is in that place where people want something done about their education, their jobs, um, you know, the health and welfare, all of the things that have been preoccupying people in the South for many generations now, I think is finally beginning to break through in the North. And... Generation and class, Mick, do do those play into that middle ground? To a certain extent, you can see it. You can see it with people before profit. They've uh, they're the only party really that has uh, challenged Sinn Féin's hegemony in West Belfast, for instance. They did have a seat in uh, twenty sixteen in McCann and Derry, 
Um, but that, I think, is, is a very particular expression of dissension from the culture war that Sinn Féin has uh, really benefited from. Um, and people who would have been serious voters, long-term voters for Sinn Féin in West Belfast, have now basically moved over to people before profit. It's not to say they don't transfer back down into Sinn Féin, but what they're saying is we want... It's not good enough to say jam tomorrow. We we want we want bread today, and we need it in some of these more exclusive excluded uh, communities like West Belfast, like the West Bank of Derry, uh, and Straban. You know, Straban's still a, a, an economic embarrassment to the rest of Northern Ireland, which in the east is actually doing very well. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's going to come to that. That I get the impression that similarly, in a lot of ways. To the south, um, you know, the, the the likes of the tech industries, the likes of the big conurbations, Dublin, Cork, Galway, Belfast uh, seems to be doing pretty well. But the the so-called peace dividend, which I suppose in one way, if you look at it, what, what was probably best directed at the most deprived areas, you mentioned Derry, Straban, like that, that isn't feeding through. No, no, it's not. And I think it's a failure of politics. Uh, it's a failure to understand that um, whilst whilst there are things that governments cannot do to influence economies, there are things it can do in terms of infrastructure. So there's been a long-running row over the A5, that road that uh, will eventually, now there's commitment from both Dublin and Belfast, will eventually commit connect Derry to, uh, to Dublin. The connections between Derry and Belfast are very poor. The, the, the sort of things like internet infrastructure is not quite there. That In that region, that sort of northwest region, uh, the, the water infrastructure isn't there. So there's a whole bunch of things that needed working on that have been neglected for 25 years and plus. Plus, there's nobody quite like John Hume in Northern Irish politics anymore. Even his own political party haven't really understood that the passion of Hume was not for building his own hegemony uh, through his own political party or even the Good Friday Agreement was in the, when the bombs and the bullets were flying, when, when you know, the IRA were trying to bomb the heart, the business heart out of Derry City. There was Hume basically cajoling and bullying and never-ending at private businessmen saying, "Get, we need your jobs. Derry needs jobs more than anything else. And there simply hasn't been any political project, I think, coming out of the West, particularly, or, or at least owning a large chunk of the political capital in the West of Northern Ireland saying, you know, actually Derry needs jobs. We've got a, we've got a highly educated young uh, w- workforce that come out and basically have to emigrate either to uh, to Belfast, to the east, uh, where the jobs are, or, or to, you know, the eastern seaboard of the Republic or, uh, or even further afield, where very often, like the Irish diaspora of old, they tend to do extremely well because... You know, because the raw human talent is there, it simply, uh, it simply isn't being utilised and championed in the way that it needs to be. And that failure of a f- politics, Mick, is it down to the lack of a figurehead like John Hume, or is is it more deep-rooted things? Is it more that the concentration is too much on the old DUP Sinn Féin, well, upmanship or whatever? Where, where would you trace that failure to? Personally, I think it, we have to remember it's a very young democracy. 
I know Northern Ireland's been in existence for 100 years and nominally for 50 years. It did have a democratic chamber. Um, it didn't work democratically because the opposition was permanently in opposition. And I think that has conditioned a lot of nationalists to not really understand the, the potential value of using democratic in, chambers and institutions that they now do have access to, uh, to deliver for them. I think also we, uh, the 30 year war, if you like, created a different idea of what politics actually was. Very often politics was just simply a cry for help, uh, you know, a, a, a focus on things like civil rights. Um, uh, but often, you know, the old donkey thing, if you put a red, red, white and blue donkey up against a green, white and gold um, donkey, then, yeah, that's the way people kind of, it was sheep and goats, if you like. A, a statement of com communal strength, and this is one of the reasons that Catholics used to marry Catholics only and Protestants used to, it was and if you married out you you got into her, terrible trouble if you sent your kids to a state grammar school instead of the local Catholic grammar that all of that is beginning to fall away so I think some of the conditions of war or wartime thinking the the simple binaries of them versus us us is beginning to drop away but our political class and I think also, to some extent, um, the political media have not really picked up the challenge of developing new literacies around what makes a successful politician. What what is what does success look like for a minister in Stormont? Um, you know, uh, and I th I think we've been very slow to develop an aesthetic around that. I think we've only dimly understood the journey that the Republic has gone on. Because as you mentioned, some of those conurbations, I've, I have childhood memories of Cork, um, you know, or certainly young teenage memories of Cork, where you couldn't really, apart from the Ford factory, you couldn't really see that kind of hinterland and infrastructure that Cork now has some 50 odd years later. Um, and that's an, that's an enormous journey that the Republic has gone on that I think in a way, um, Northern Ireland could do well to start understanding that it has to go on a similar kind of journey itself. Yeah, it's a very interesting point that because uh, I mean you mentioned Cork and just down there for a few days, and it really struck me. I, I was thinking, just looking around briefly back to my own childhood, and I remember we went on a holiday to England at one stage, and the kind of cities you would encounter there were alien, but now Cork is a replica of them. Do you know what I mean? It, it has moved on so quickly. But the point about that is that development, hyper-development possibly, only really began in the 90s. And of course, that was only when the peace came about in the North. So you're talking perhaps a couple of decades behind it. And then you, I suppose you add in all, all the other complications since then as well. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Moving that on a small bit, the protocol, 
Is it as big an issue as some seem to think? And where do you see it going, irrespective of who ends up with the largest um, number of seats in the Assembly? Okay, so uh, is it a large issue not for the broad population of Northern Ireland? There's a certain puzzlement as to why unionists have got themselves tied up with this. Um, now, I, I, but within unionism, it's a big issue. Uh, you know, it, you're, you're talking about, we're probably talking about 20, 25% of the whole population who are really concerned about it, but that, that's concentrated almost exclusively within unionism and, and within unionism almost exclusively in that small block that constitutes the DUP and the TUV. But 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 that doesn't mean to say it's not a problem. If it's a problem for them, it's a problem for everybody because we are locked into power sharing, uh, you know, almost in perpetuity. So if they can't get it, get their heads around it, then we're we're all stuck on the other side of uh, you know freedom, if you like. Um, there's no doubt that there's huge potential within um, the protocol. Um, huge economic um, potential, actually, for unionism. Really, almost a, almost a perpetual guarantee that there won't be United, United Ireland because if you do have dual access to both the British market and the European market, w- w- under what circumstances would you necessarily want to give that up by coming into the provenance of the of an All Ireland Republic? So that, but they can't get there because um, as things stand. A lot, of, a lot of the concessions that have been made by the European Union on the on east-west trade, you know, trade from Britain into Northern Ireland, are all very provisional and still sit within the within the control of the European Union. So there's a sense in which they're not going to be satisfied until there is some kind of guarantee that free trade will continue both ways between Britain and Ireland. So in that sense. It covers two things. One, as you said, a sense that um, the cost of a soft border, a land border, has come at the implication of uh, or the sort of the implementation of a hard border across the North Channel that separates uh, Northern Ireland from Scotland. So that's symbolic, but also it is hitting small, smaller traders, people who trade in things like white goods, who, who really only have ease of supply from Britain that isn't easily replaced uh, or certainly isn't inexpensively uh, uh, replaced by simply sourcing it, not just in the Republic, but you'd have to go further afield to France and Germany and Poland, et cetera, et cetera, which, uh, you know, our transport costs and all the rest of it. So there's a pragmatic aspect to their resistance, but but I also think they're they're just simply not going to give up on this uh, the, the, this this soft border, and actually, I think there are implications if the DUP get first minister's job. I think they will continue in office and will continue to campaign on the issue. If they don't get first minister's job, I think it's down tools until you get this thing sorted out. So, um, so who gets the first minister's job will depend will will condition just how negotiations over the protocol um, continue. The DUP get First Minister's job, they'll go back to work like everybody else. Um, but if they don't, they won't. I just, it just strikes me, Nick, that as you said, the middle ground, the, the unionists with a small U a lot, if you want to put it, that they realise on some level that uh, the old fears of constitutional change are certainly not immediate and 
probably won't come around for the long term. Yet it would seem that the committed unionists, that fear is really driving a large part of the resistance to the protocol. And the other element to that is, what do you see of the ultimate outcome being in terms of sorting this out? It's hard to tell. I mean, one of the things, I said Slugger up 20 years ago this June, so I've been watching this space for quite a long time, from a distance actually, because I don't actually, I'm I'm no longer living at home. And I think that kind of external perspective often unhooks you from the huge emotions that people feel in a place like Northern Ireland where everything is contested, you know, streets are contested, songs are contested, you know, a a DUP MP can turn around like Gregory Campbell did and go gobble my yoghurt instead of gurra my yoghurt. And And the whole walls fall in, despite the fact that you and I both know that the people we grew up with said much harsher things about the Irish language than than any unionist is ever going to say. So, so it's um, uh, what what I've learned over that period of time is that things get broke, but they don't stay broke forever. So, uh, and there is at the end of the day, if the, if the protocol is unpopular with with those hardcore unionists, the devolution is also very popular. So the motivations to get back to work eventually as, will work its magic, will work, work its kind of gravitorial magic, magic in the way that it did with Sinn Féin, who, who basically, remember, down tools for three years, but in the end saw the southern election coming up and went, right, we better get back to work because this is going to be difficult for us to explain why we want to get into government in the south but are staying for reasons that we can't really explain, out of government in the north. So I, I think the motivations, if you like, the um, the incentives are will be to get back to work. Uh, in terms of constitutional outcomes, really the latest Liverpool poll is telling us only 30% of people in Northern Ireland would want a united Ireland tomorrow. Uh, and if if you push it back to ten to fifteen years, only another three percent are saying they'd add. So I don't think there's any great demand for United Ireland. I think those who've been advocating it up front and who've been advocating a border pull really haven't even got to uh, square one in terms of explaining what that might look like or what the advantages are. I, I'll be honest and say that I think the only serious piece of um, public policy on uh, it's not reunification, but, but enhancing North-South relations has been Micheál Martin's shared uh, island initiative. Shared island implies that you're not attacking on a constitutional basis. That relaxes everybody. And when you actually when you actually look at the way that initiative is working, it's kind of seeding research to find out where the consonances are rather than where the breakpoints are. Where, where public policy can be enhanced north and south in terms of, you know, uh, shared research and development, um, l- looking at educational ideas, perhaps that the Republic has been running for a long time that might, uh, you know, solve things like the desh schools, you know, where you're aiming at uh, underachievement in impoverished or deprived uh, communities. V- various things like this that aren't sexy, but actually could substantially make a difference. That's all long-term stuff. I think in the short term, the border poll, uh, any any form of reunification, I think, is a fantasy because we, over a 100 years, have grown into very different spaces, 
not because we're different people. There's enough that links Irish people of either either denomination, north and south, to link us so that there is a no, there's a huge emotional bond between us. We see that every time the Irish rugby team takes the field. You know, despite the fact that unionists are uncomfortable with the with the the tricolor uh, being used as the as the team's flag, they still love the game. They still love the green shirt, and and so there there are there are huge emotional bonds, but they simply haven't been underwritten by enough uh, consonants within the governance structures to to make a unification likely. No matter how bumpy Brexit gets, no matter how difficult. Um, you know the, the issues are over the protocol. Uh, I think there's only there's only one way home, and that's back through Stormont, and um, that's where they'll be eventually. And at the same time, Mick, you have what you might call a parallel narrative, uh, largely to be fair, coming from Sinn Fein, and not not exclusively, but largely. For example, Mary Lou Macdonald, I think, it was in the US around Patrick's weekend, suggested that a United Ireland was being talked about in every town and village on the island, which really surprised me. I, in fact, I, 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 I was minded to say on the rocky slopes of Kumikishta in South Kerry, they talk of little else. Uh, but, uh, you know, you have you have that there. You have, to be fair, in terms of political uh, narrative, the prospect, uh, certainly at the moment, looking very likely Sinn Féin leading the next government in the South, Notwithstanding, I know under the Belfast Agreement, the South's role is lesser in that if there is a poll, it'll follow in the North. You have the prospect, it would seem, of them being the largest party in the North and, and in theory, at least holding the First Ministry. And let's face it, this is the primary political project for Sinn Féin. So between it all, you, you have the pushing of that narrative towards an expedited route to a border poll and thereafter a United Ireland. And yet, as you say, certainly in terms of the polling, that seems to be at odds with the reality. But does that perception, that narrative, eventually become its own force? I don't know, you see. What what do you think of that? I don't see how it scales. I mean, look, if you go to the wonderful... uh, Linen Hall Library in in uh, the main square, Donegal Square in in Belfast. You'll see a whole collection of historic uh, posters from the Troubles era, particularly. It's really fascinating because it kind of gives you an idea of the emotional struggles that went on. And there's one from um, some Republicans for source. I can't remember, but it basically said Ireland free in seventy three, right. United Ireland, until it becomes, until the work, the groundwork, the spade work is done, the United Ireland is a brilliant propaganda tool for brigading people within one section of the community. But as the the, the sacrifice you make in terms of making that single identity appeal, which is deeply resonant with anybody who comes up through my community, you know, they they now code it into CNR, which is Catholic Nationalist Republican. You know that that's brilliant, but but you can't raise a flag. You can't get to fifty percent plus one, even which is the bare minimum allowed by the legislation, unless you make a broader appeal to a broader form of Irishness, which includes a lot of people who won't necessarily vote yes in the poll. But but who will maybe not turn up for the poll? Uh, uh, the the green, white, and orange, as you know, Mars 
flag was invented back in the in the in the eighteen eighteen forties had a very noble pluralistic intention, and I still think that that flag captures that intention. But but it's a green flag that gets raised up that has no space for the orange, and and and, and that is good for building a hegemony within one community. But it simply isn't sufficient to build a bridge to create the wherewithal. So the narrative is brilliant in the limited terms in which it um you know it's brilliant for getting money out of Irish Americans, for instance. Um, it's it's brilliant for making people feel good and warm and comfortable in their own myths, but it's not fit for purpose when it comes to building what you need to do to bring those two sides together uh, and, to, and to make that flag a kind of a reality, not just a truce. Because in a way, the flag also, uh, although it was you know invented back in the 1840s, is also that white thing also looks a bit like partition. It looks like permanent partition. So there's, there's a... Th- th- I don't think it's capable of doing the thing it says on the tin. So it, it's a it's a it's a brilliant banner for brigading people, and in, into silos. But it's not. It won't do the job. Uh, it won't. It can't. It just can't do the job because it's too alienating. Um, so I I don't see I don't see that that's even a possibility. While Sinn Fein's holding that flag, and actually what she says is not true. We both know it's not true. There are places in Kerry where they have a deep and abiding. Republican tradition, people like Martin Ferris come out of that tradition, and I don't disrespect um, people like that or communities around Tralee particularly, right? But it's simply, Cork has its own business to get on with. It's it's a rebel county, but only in the context of the Civil War. It has no interest. I would say nothing much south of Mullingar has any abiding interest in what happens in the north. It's different for the border counties. You know, if you take Donegal, and I'm not just talking about the historic Ulster counties, you go Donegal, Leitrim, Sligo, um, Cavan, Monaghan and Louth, they've all got a deep understanding because they're part of that cross-border territory. Um, before partition, Belfast was was much more in, in their sights than, than, say, Dublin, particularly, you know, pre-partition when, when transport links were very poor uh, between many of those counties in Dublin. Um, so, so, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a, she's myth-making, and I don't blame her for making it because it's been good business, business for that, that particular team, but it, it has no more realistic chance of affecting uh, an end to partition than the, the, the two major parties that they previously criticised for not taking enough interest in it. They may have people in Belfast, they may have people in Dublin, but they can't make each place care any more about each other unless they do the practical business that the Shared Island Initiative is trying to prosecute. One other thing that does strike me about Sinn Féin's approach to it, they talk the talk in terms of reconciliation and and attempting to woo, if you want to put it that way, unionists into a, a single entity. But I, I do get the impression, and I, I hope I'm not being unfair, that they they have great difficulty in walking the walk in terms of reaching out in a real way to unionists. I'm thinking in particular even their attitudes towards commemorating the troubles in in various ways and a lot of other things that uh, it, it's still like the 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 view things through very much that green prism rather than being able to shift closer to to, to what 
unionist community might regard as being acceptable. Uh, do you get that impression, or, or is is that unfair? No, I don't think it's unfair. I think, but I think there are practical reasons for it. I mean, look, what 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 Sinn Fein owes is a huge debt to members of the wider provisional movement. There's a lot of people who went out and got killed, uh, but but actually killed a lot of people in the cause of Irish, their cause of Irish freedom. Not not one that's necessarily shared by the wider citizenry, but if you if you if you come into the what they call the Republican movement, but which is more I think more appropriately described as the provisional movement, not to pejoratively tie them to the IRA, but it's part of their her- inheritance from that period of time. So what they're doing is trying to honour the people that that came before, so to speak, and they're tied to that. But that, in a sense, is an alienating inheritance. It kind of puts them at odds with the with the communities which they oppressed. And I'm not just talking about Protestant, you know, the rural Protestant border uh, communities that, that clearly there was a huge amount of clearing out of, of, of Protestant farmers from those areas. But but also some of the Catholic Catholic areas in which they were dominant, in which these paramilitary forces but but there's so they're tied to that on one hand, and yet they're deeply aware of the fact they have to do something on reconciliation. But I can tell you this, Mick, that the, the of the of the unionists that they and they have been consistently trying to reach out to unionists. But what the unionists they reach out to and who are warm in their responses, because many of them will just say, go away, I'm not going to talk to you. They say, look, we talk, but they don't listen. So the, there's something about the makeup of, of Sinn Féin and its recent history connected with that paramilitary history, I think that makes it makes it hard for them to internalise the responses that they're getting from those unionists who are willing to engage with them. You know, so so, you know, what I hear from unionists who have done that, they say, look, they're willing to engage, but they're not willing to listen to what we have to say. Because in a year's time, they come back to us and they ask us exactly the same questions they did before. So it's almost as though um, they're going through the motions because that's they can say they've done this, but they're not actually using any of the intelligent responses they're getting from liberal unionists to build something that is more... Uh, more, um, if you like, um, makes them more amenable to those less uh, culturally rigid unionists that they need to get to that fifty percent plus one. In fact, you know the big problem. The big problem they've got isn't just that they can't reach unionists. There's a large chunk of nationalists that they can't convince that constitutional change is is going to be worth the hassle as well. Yeah, that is an interesting aspect. But absolutely, tell me, Mick. Finally. With the election, with, I don't know, perhaps that burgeoning middle ground with a, a different focus from a younger generation, um, notwithstanding the issues that are going to arise, whether or not the UP, for instance, if they're not First Minister, are going to cooperate or not. Do you have some optimism about where we're heading in the North? Yeah, I do. I do. Um you know, back in 2012, I wrote a piece in the teeth of the flag dispute, which I think, I, I, I'll i be honest and say on a personal basis, I think I found that the most depressing moment of the last 20 years. And I and I sat down to get, almost to give myself a good talking to and go, right. That was a flag dispute on Belfast City Hall, wasn't it? Yeah, over whether or not they'd be flying the, the tricolour. Yeah, yeah, the, the Union yeah. Jack, yeah, yeah. Um, 
So it was a, an issue that was sort of forced by Sinn Féin, backed by the SDLP and Alliance, that basically said, well, we're not going to take the flag down completely, but it should only be flown on designated days. And that created a reflex within, uh, uh, which was supported by the DUP and the Ulster Unionists. And then it set up a whole bunch of um, sort of guerrilla uh, protests that brought North, uh, Belfast to a standstill in the run-up to Christmas. Uh, and in that moment, I wrote a thing um, on Slugger, which I constantly go back to, which is what remains of value within the, North, uh, the, the middle ground in Northern Ireland. And, and and I think really what's happened from that moment is that slowly I think we've seen a reassertion of power and pr- more importantly presence, political presence within that middle ground. Because what you've got with the DUP uh, Sinn Féin standoff, why ultimately speaking it can't work in any functional way, is you've got two groups of voters that don't connect with each other anywhere. The middle ground is where people rub shoulders with the other side. And if you don't have anybody in your main voter base who lives in an area where, you know, unionists are not just neighbours or friends, but actually people that you could maybe see a common cause with. And so whilst I'm not sure what the rise of an alliance vote would actually signal in practical or political terms, I think what it's saying to the main parties, the other main, the four main parties is, look, if you don't get your act together with this particular demographic, your prospects for getting anything done in Northern Ireland's finished because these guys are not interested in your pet project of saving the union or creating a united Ireland. So whilst you may um, want to continue with that aspiration, you need to get yourselves good with these people in the middle. And uh, try and get a bit of that action uh, for yourself. And I think that, in a sense, is really, um, it's cause for hope because dysfunctionality has done, in government, has done neither the DUP nor Sinn Féin any electoral harm up to now. I think we may see, I mean, what's interesting about the fact I say this is Sinn Féin's election to, um, you know, to lose but actually, where they're actually at at the polling in general terms means they're almost certain to lose some seats. That You can see in places like Mid-Ulster where they're strong, where Michelle O'Neill is strong. If they put a fourth candidate in there, they might actually have taken a seat off the SDLP. But they're actually in defensive mode, a little bit like they were in the run-up to the 2020 election. But I think in this case, with good cause, I've just looked at North Antrim as a constituency. They topped the poll there last time round, but there's a very strong uh, candidate coming through from Alliance in North Antrim that could well um, push uh, push the Sinn Féin MLA out of that seat. So, so the, I think nationalism in particular, but unionism also needs to start kind of getting their heads around where this middle sector of the population is going. The fact is, it's growing. Uh, I, I think we'll see from the census just how strongly it's growing. Uh, but if you haven't got anything other than a border poll or uh, the connection with Britain to sell to people, that this particular group of people are going to say, right, well, we're not really interested in that, so we'll just go, we'll just go for the, the 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 middle ground. So I think it's a healthy thing. I think it's it's it potentially an indication that we are beginning to move 
if not towards maturity, at least the adolescent stage of uh, you know, a proper democratic um, state of affairs. On that positive note, McFeelty from Slugrow Tool, thank you very much for a fascinating insight today. Thanks, mate. It's been a pleasure. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening, and we'll see you very soon. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.